morning, everyone. It's a, a pleasure to be back in Cambridge and um, a pleasure to have Pastor Bailey preaching in my pulpit and a lot of fun to be preaching in his. I'd ask you to turn your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 27. I had a momentary scare a day or two ago when I saw um, Elder Montgomery's email, that, and it noted that um, uh, Pastor Bailey went through this passage just recently, and I thought, oh no, one week, two weeks, and then he said it was like six months, so maybe, maybe I'm safe. Um, if you are using the Pew Bibles, the red Bibles, you can find this passage on, give me a second, page 1101. I will not be reading from the New King James Version. I'll be reading from my ESV Bible. Hopefully that's not too distracting. Hear God's Word. Acts chapter 27, starting at the first verse and reading through verse 32. And stopping in the middle of the story. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coasts of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting it along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, and the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, 
All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some, some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. That's where we will stop. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I will give you, at the risk of taking up too much time, I have a little timer on my phone, so it'll warn me if I'm really going long, I will give you just a quick recap of how we got to this point in the book of Acts. The book of Acts starts out with Jesus' commission to his disciples that they're going to be his witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, going out through the Holy Land, and then from there to the ends of the earth. And about halfway through the book of Acts, we meet a character who will become very familiar to us, somebody who wrote more than half of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And Paul, who was once a persecutor of God's people, becomes ultimately uh, one of the greatest preachers that uh, the Christian religion has ever had. And in the last third of the book of Acts, we are seeing Paul coming to the conclusion of his missions, which he conducted throughout the eastern Mediterranean uh, region, and going on to a very, very difficult place. Paul is arrested after arriving in Jerusalem and accused, uh, on the one hand, of having defiled and uh, blasphemed and profaned the temple in Jerusalem, On the other hand, he's accused of something that Jesus was accused of before him, which is trying to start an uprising against the Romans. After a little while, he is uh, taken uh, into custody no longer in Jerusalem because it's not safe for him, but he's taken north to Caesarea, which was the place where the Roman governor had his seat, had his seat of power. And after several years in custody, being strung along, strung along, he finally has an opportunity to go to Rome. Paul, unlike Jesus, was a Roman citizen, and so he had a legal right to make his case if he believed he wasn't getting a fair shake. He had a legal right to appeal to and make his case before Caesar himself. Before you get too excited about that, you should know that the Caesar at this time was most likely Nero, one of the worst guys to ever sit in a very bad throne. So Paul is on his way to Rome. Finally, at long last, he is making his way to Rome, and that's where we join him here in, verse, or in chapter 27. 
One of the first things you notice about chapter 27, uh, or you should, if uh, like me, your head is swimming, almost literally, with place names after reading this chapter, is the detail, the level of detail that the author of of Acts, uh, Luke, gets into. And there's a really important reason for that. Now, this is such a detailed passage that historians, not necessarily people who are Christians or interested in the Bible in particular, actually refer to Acts chapter 27 as a resource for understanding ancient sailing techniques in the Roman Empire. There's a ton of detail here. And there's a reason for this. And that is that Luke is bending over backwards to make sure that we know that this is a true story that can be fact-checked all over the place. Okay? There are several things just to, to point out briefly. One is that this is one of the famous we passages of the book of Acts. He says we a lot because Luke was there with Paul and a handful of other Christians on this voyage. So Paul and Luke were seasick alongside of each other. They were tossing stuff overboard alongside of each other. The reason that it says we all along is that this is an eyewitness firsthand account. But furthermore, we have names and details given all the way through the passage. Now, I'll get into a couple of these in a second, but I just want to give you sort of a general rule of thumb for reading the Bible, particularly the New Testament, particularly the Gospels and Acts. And that is when you run into a minor character who is named, or who is not named for that matter, it's on purpose. So we'll see in earlier Gospels, such as Mark and Matthew, There are certain people, minor characters, who are not named, but when we get to the book of John, they are named. The reason that they're not named earlier is that they could actually get in trouble. Those of you who use social media, which is, whether you admit it or not, probably most of you at one time or another, you know you have to be really careful about who you tag, or who you mention, or who you say something about. The same thing was happening when these ancient books were written. If you call out so-and-so as a witness of Jesus, you make so-and-so a target of potential persecution. So John, writing much later than the other gospel writers, feels free to name names where the other guys didn't because he had already outlived most of those witnesses. The same thing is happening here in Luke 27 in a reverse direction. Luke is naming names and giving details so that his readers can check on everything he's saying. So right from the beginning, we read that, uh, he's in the, that Paul is in the, in, uh, under the charge of a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. They can find that guy. He's on a list somewhere. Uh, and embarking on a ship of Adramidium, they would be registered. You can find all this detail. Uh, accompanied by a guy named Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. This can be checked on probably by people within the church. All of this is given in great detail so that Luke is confirming, I am not telling you a parable, I am not spinning an interesting story, and I am not making this up. This happened. But when we read this, and maybe I'll just blame myself for this, maybe you're a better reader of Acts than I am. When we read this, when I read this, my first reaction reading Acts chapter 27 is basically to say, Cool story, bro. It's basically to say, well, that's interesting. I mean, that's miraculous that they got through that all right. 
But I don't really know what this has to do with the other themes of the book of Acts. Why is it so important that we hear at such excruciating detail about Paul's shipwreck? And what does that have to do with the rest of the book of Acts? What does it have to do with Paul's preaching and the preaching of Jesus Christ as it goes out into the world? And I've come to the conclusion that this totally true and factual account is given to us because it is such a powerful picture, among other reasons, it is such a powerful picture of the gospel going into the world, the world not wanting to hear it, and yet many from the world being saved from the judgment of God. Let me just point out a couple of details that map the message of the gospel to what actually happens in this passage. They get on the ship, they're on their way, they're sailing along the coast of Turkey, they're starting to turn east, and uh, Paul pipes up, Paul has no authority on the ship whatsoever, but he never is afraid of opening his mouth. And Paul pipes up and says, we're not going to make it. And there's reasons to think that. It's not just a miraculous vision that he has that tells him we're all going to get destroyed. There are prudential reasons for him to come to this conclusion, including simply the time of year. It says, uh, you'll you'll read uh, in verse 9 that even the fast was already over. That's talking about Yom Kippur. This takes place in the early fall. And this means that we are pretty much getting past the safe time when a sailing ship could make its way across the Mediterranean Sea from Israel, what's now Israel, to Rome. In fact, it's very clear to Paul, and it should be clear to others, that this is a very risky proposition. Now, we read about them changing ships, and that's simply because they didn't get on a Roman Navy ship and make their way over. They got on a ship that was rented. They had to pay for passage, just like any other passengers. And they're making their way over, and Paul is telling them, listen, I perceive that uh, we are not going to make it through this. There will be injury and much loss, not only of that, of the cargo and of the ship itself, but also of our lives. Paul warns of coming destruction to people who don't want to hear it. Just as he has preached a message of coming judgment, first to Jews and then to Gentiles, to people who don't want to hear it. The storm of God's judgment is coming, whether they believe it or not. As they go, of course, Paul's, uh, Paul's warnings come true, and he is not above popping up and saying, men, you should have listened to me, I told you so. But... There is also a message of salvation from that judgment. And so Paul brings a message of salvation hope. He's almost, almost like Jonah in the Old Testament when the storm is coming down on the ship and uh, they're wondering how are we going to deal with this. And of course Jonah stands up and says, this is coming from my God and if you throw me overboard he will be appeased. Paul in a sense is the reverse of that where he says, the storm has come upon us, and the only one who can save you is my God. I love how he puts it, actually. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve. The God to whom I belong and whom I serve is the one who can save you from this judgment storm. And if you will cling to me, if you will stay with me, then we will all be saved together. And yet, let's make clear, we've already lost most of what's on the ship, and we're going to lose the rest. Yet you will be saved with your life. There is a message of salvation, hope, from God's messenger 
but a clear message that all else will be lost. And if you get nothing else from this passage and from this sermon, I hope you get this. If you are going to be a Christian, you need to be prepared to lose everything as you seek the kingdom of God. Everything but salvation itself. Now, there are all sorts of different places we can go in the Bible that will actually talk about this. And I'll go through a handful of them, just looking at a couple different scriptures. You can jump around with me if you want to. Usually it's just one or two verses. But one of the things that we must be willing to get to lose if we are going to follow the path that the Lord has set for us and enter the kingdom of God, if we're going to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, is worldly success. It is not a bad thing to want to be successful, to want your work to go well, whatever your work is, whether it's in the home or in the university or in the office or in the factory. It is good to want success. It is not unreasonable. It's not wicked. It's not necessarily ambitious and selfish to desire success. There's a very striking passage, though, that speaks to this in the book of Jeremiah. We know Jeremiah, Jeremiah's weeping prophet, lives at this in, in time of incredible tension and danger, and ultimately he witnesses the siege and fall of Jerusalem, and he is taken off into exile himself. Well, Jeremiah had one consistent friend throughout his ministry, and that was a man named Baruch. And Baruch was a scribe, and Baruch probably did most of the writing of the book of Jeremiah. Remember, uh, prophetic books are highlight reels of the prophet's ministry, not a transcript of the whole thing. But Baruch is the guy who wrote down what Jeremiah had to say. And there's one little passage. It's only five. It's a chapter, five verses long. uh, Jeremiah chapter 45, where the camera actually turns around. And instead of being Baruch holding the camera, as it were, on Jeremiah, the camera turns around and it focuses on Baruch. And the Lord actually gives a word to Baruch. And he says... As addressing Baruch's uh, weeping and grieving over his own life. Jeremiah had plenty of trouble, but Baruch had a hard time too, as Jeremiah's only friend. The Lord says to Baruch, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. Now, what's going on here? Is Baruch out to make it big? Is he looking for scribe of the year on the uh, ancient equivalent of Time magazine? No. One commentator says about this, that all Baruch is seeking is the success which a good man in any age may reasonably expect. And the Lord says, you are not going to have that. But... I will save your life. And the path that God calls us to may mean we do not have the success which a good person in any age may reasonably expect. The Lord may call us to give up success. The Lord may call us to give up family. And that may be because we forego having a family for the sake of the kingdom of God. We choose a godly celibacy instead of getting married, which is a good and acceptable thing. Or it may be because the the Lord does not give us children when we desire children. Or it may be 
that our relationship with Christ, our walk with God, costs us the love of our family. Remember what he says in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That may be the cost. That may be thrown overboard as you seek the kingdom of God. Well, what else? How about the past? Now, some of us cling to the past because we are crippled by the things that we have done or other people have done to us. We hold on to the past because of the damage and the hurt, and we believe that those things define us, and we cannot possibly get free of them. Some of us hold on to the past because of the triumphs and the glories of the past, and we think that those triumphs and glories define us and make us who we are in the eyes of God. But Paul, who had both triumphs and glories in his past and tremendous shame for his rebellion against Christ, says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, for, I, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He says, uh, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Then he turns around and he says, look, it's not in the bag. I'm not done. I'm not done with the path that the Lord has set for me. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, there is no hint in here that Paul somehow earns his salvation. In fact, he makes that abundantly clear. Righteousness, uh, not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith in Christ, who loved me and gave himself up for me. But he understands that the path may cost him everything. And that the path has already cost him his past. Whatever is good and whatever is bad about it is over and done. Now, let's step a little bit bigger. We've been talking about individual things, right? And the kingdom of God may cost us success. It may cost us family. It may make us let go of the past, whether it's a good past or a bad past or both. But one of the great messages of the book of Acts is something that becomes clear in place after place as the gospel confronts the ruling authorities of the ancient world, whether they are in Jerusalem and they're the Jewish authorities, or in a small ways in the various synagogues of the ancient world, or in dramatic ways when the gospel confronts the political leaders of the ancient world. Now, the, the, now the, the Christian gospel... And this is something that the old Reformed Presbyterians understood intuitively, if not very smoothly, and didn't have all the kinks worked out in applying it. The Christian gospel has both an individual application, an individual impact, which we've just been talking about, and a community impact. Psalm 1, Psalm 2. The righteous man in Psalm 1, what, that, what we are to be before God if we belong to him, and 
the nations must make peace with the Son of God in Psalm 2. Both of those things are equally true. And one of the things that comes up over and over again throughout the book of Acts is when the gospel goes before these various rulers of the ancient world, they have to puzzle over and figure out what are we looking at here? Are we looking at people who are trying to set up a new government? Are we looking at people who are rebels, like various Jewish uprisings had been over time? Or are we looking at something else? And what the gospel always says to the rulers of the world, whether they're ancient rulers or modern rulers, is the hands of the church are open to you, appealing. Be reconciled to God, but also understand that this will turn your whole way of life upside down. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is not just about natural disasters. This is about the end of the world as we know it in the REM song type of way. It's about seeing institutions and ways of life and cultures and traditions crumble before our eyes. And this shows up in the book of Acts in powerful ways. When Paul goes to Ephesus, probably the city where his ministry had the most impact throughout his time on earth. We read that as people begin to believe the gospel, we read that a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is an enormous thing that happens when people are voluntarily burning their books of magic. This is the loss of a way of life. It will mean the end of the culture of Ephesus as they know it. Later on, a silver craftsman named Demetrius uh, makes a speech in front of his uh, fellow craftsmen. This is the great industry. This is like um, finance is to New York City. This is the great industry of Ephesus. And he stands up before his brother craftsman and says, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. They're making shrines and statues of the goddess Artemis so that people can take them as religious souvenirs, take them home to their home cities and worship them in their own homes. And he says, there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And you know, he wasn't exaggerating much. There is a near riot that takes place near in the, in the theater of Ephesus. And finally, the town clerk gets up and calms everybody down and says, Hey, look, guys, Artemis is going to be fine. But we need to be careful because we're going to get arrested for causing a public disturbance. Demetrius was right. And the gospel would mean that when we go to visit Ephesus today or Rome today, we visit the ruins of the temples and not the temples themselves. The acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ by a person, by a family, by a nation, by a culture will mean that much is lost. Well, what may that mean for us? Well, a few things to say. 
First of all, we need to be prepared for those losses in our individual lives. And I'm going to give you two, and I won't spend long on this, just a, just a minute. I'm going to give you two extremely old-fashioned, uncomfortably specific recommendations as to how to lighten the ship. Okay? You ready? Give a tenth of your money away to the work of God. They call it tithing. The second, take one day in every seven and rest from all your labors and give it to worship and hospitality and love. That's it. Tithe and keep the Sabbath. Why are these... Well, they're obviously uncomfortable, aren't they? Because it means that we are saying a tenth of all that I have belongs to God. And we're saying that a seventh of all my time at least belongs to God. What we are doing is saying, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to start sacrificing that which I have to the Lord as a token that all that I have belongs to the Lord and that I'm willing to give up 100% of it in seven days out of my week in order to serve him better. And I'm going to leave it there. Lighten the ship in your own personal life. But more than that, there's a glimmer of good news here. Because the gospel, as I said a few minutes ago, threatened the ancient world and it threatens our world. Our denomination, the RPCNA, will not last forever. Our Constitution in the United States, do you love the Constitution? I do. Will it last forever? It will not. Our nation, as we know it, will not live forever. Our churches and our buildings, we're very excited in Providence right now. We're getting this building. We're so, so stoked about this. We're like, look, it has classrooms. It gets bigger. It has sunlight, which most Episcopal churches, for some reason, didn't. This is an old Episcopal church. All these great things. You know what? Back in 1965, when the church was built, another congregation had all of the same excitement. And they gave sacrificially to building this beautiful building. And they are gone. And a time will come when God is done with every congregation, with every denomination, with every nation, with every empire, with every business, with every institution, with every family, that day will come and it will be okay. The Lord will save us, though it means throwing everything overboard. Now I said a moment ago that there was a glimmer of hope in here because the gospel actually changes our relationship with our families. Um, Some people, especially if you're from a, a Catholic background, which probably some of you are, some, some people th- look at Presbyterian churches and they say, why do they still cling to infant baptism, of all things? Isn't that just like an old Catholic rite of passage? Isn't it, 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 even those who are positive about infant baptism say, that's a really nice family event. What they don't understand is that when you present your child for baptism, you are saying, my family is not the most important identity this child has. You're saying, my, fa- my child belongs not ultimately to me. Any ancient Roman father believed that his children belonged ultimately to him. You're saying that these children or this child of mine belongs not to me, but to God himself. And he is entrusted to my care. 
And I must do what I can, not to make him merely a good family member, though that's a good thing to be. I must do everything I can to make my sons and daughters followers of Jesus Christ. This is the glimpse of hope I want us to see. Kind of, if you actually look at it, it's a little bit of a funny passage. They are come to this, uh, Paul has given them this word of hope, but near the end of the passage we read, we read that 14th night is here, uh, and they begin to take soundings, which means they begin to drop basically a bucket into the, into the water to find out how deep it is. And they figure, oh, it's 20 fathoms deep. Oh, okay, now it's 15 fathoms deep. We must be near shore. We can't see a thing, but we recognize that the, the water's getting shallower, so we're getting closer. And uh, they, they run some sea anchors out. They're trying to keep the thing steady. And then some sailors go, hey, we'll paddle the ship's boat, the little small boat that they have attached to it. Out. We'll drop some more anchors in order to keep things so they can ride here on the sea and be safe. And Paul recognizes, hey, these guys aren't uh, going out to fix the ship up. They're, they're going to make a break for it. And so he says to the soldiers, if they leave without you or the rest of us, you cannot be saved. And in a moment of soldiers being soldiers, instead of just grabbing the guys by the collars and hauling them back on the boat or onto the ship, they cut all the ropes and lose the ship's boat. And it goes drifting off. Well, there goes our boat. So what is going on here? Paul is actually turning upside down the relationship of the believer and the community. Because if you're in a traditional culture, and some of you may have grown up in a traditional culture. It may be an Asian culture. It may be a Central or South American culture, African culture. Not Western is my point. If you come from a traditional culture, you will know that your ancestors, your parents, are all important. What they think, what they want for you, what they want you to do is everything. And you're trying to chart your course and You've always got to keep in mind, I have to please my parents. I have to serve my ancestors. In certain cultures, it means giving them an offering from time to time. I have to please those who came before me. What the gospel does is it actually turns that upside down. It doesn't do that by saying, no, no, you're on your own. Go have fun. Do, you know, save yourself. In fact, it says, not only may you not just be out to save yourself, but you must take responsibility for saving all of those who are with you, in as much as you have any influence over them. We baptize our children because God has given us a responsibility of baptizing our children to bring them into a saving relationship with Christ, to put them in the discipleship of Christ. So that is what that begins to look like. We are called to do all in our power to bring our people with us. Through prayer, first and foremost, you don't get to baptize your parents as much as you might want to, but you do get to baptize your kids. Discipleship. This is one problem. There's a few problems with the wonderful, wonderful book, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Christian sets out from the city of destruction for the heavenly, for the celestial city, right? And he has a brief conversation with his wife and his, I don't know how many kids, seven kids, five kids, something like that. And the wife wants nothing to do with it. Okay, fair enough. You can't drag your spouse along. But can you do anything to bring your five-year-old with you toward the celestial city? 
Pilgrim's Progress looks at this as a 100% individual pursuit. That is not what we are called to do. We are called to do everything in our power to rightly bring those who belong to us with us. Now, of course, I'm talking about families primarily, but there's other relationships as well. If you are a person in authority in your workplace, no, you don't get to baptize your employees. But you should pray for your employees. And you should make your workplace such a place that the righteousness of God is at least a little bit more clearer to them than they would be. You want to make your workplace or your office or, you know, wherever you are, you want to make it a place where people get a little glimpse of the righteousness, the holiness, the gentleness, the kindness of Christ. So that you are, even if you do not have good opportunities to share the gospel in an overt, clear way, you do get to pave the path that when the time comes, the things that are talked about when the gospel is shared make a little bit more sense than they otherwise would. A couple more things to say about this. Now, I said earlier that Paul is like a a better Jonah who calls those around him to trust in the grace of Christ and be saved from the storm of God's judgment. Um, We are not Jonah, and we cannot save others by throwing ourselves into the sea. But Jesus did, and his sacrifice of himself not only pointed them in a right direction as if he were merely a teacher of righteousness, but it was the atonement for their sins and for our sins, which the world needed. So when Jesus goes into the storm, he is destroyed by it. And yet he is raised again on the third day. He gave himself for our sins. Whether we are self-righteous people or we are in the view view of Jonah, for instance, in the Old Testament, everybody on the boat with him was a dirty heathen. And he who did not want to preach to dirty heathens wound up sacrificing his life to save dirty heathens. We're all that in the eyes of God. And our sins have made a separation between us and our God, yet Jesus cast himself into the sea of God's judgment so that we could have life. The last water that every one of us must cross is the dark river. And every one of us will cross it unless Jesus comes back first. Every one of us must make that necessary long journey that is not welcome to anyone. Will we be prepared? By God's grace, we can be prepared. Every one of us must pass through the water, just as in a few days, everyone would have to jump into the water in order to make it to land when Paul's ship wrecked. But God has granted to Christ all those who are with him. Therefore, Count the cost. Count the cost. If you are a new Christian, if you're not sure you're a a Christian, if you are an old, experienced Christian, which some of you are, I know you, you must look at your life and say, is there anything that I am counting as my highest joy and my greatest good above Jesus Christ? Is there anything that I look at and I say, no, that's too precious to me, I can't throw that overboard. Even salvation is not good enough for me to give that up. Count the cost. 
cut the ropes. Lift up your people, whoever they are, your kids, your parents, your brothers and sisters, your co-workers, your colleagues, your friends. Lift up your people before God in prayer and get ready to swim. Let's pray. Lord, every one of us has a little bit of a different story. Every one of us has a different set of relationships. Every one of us has a different set of challenges, temptations, things that we are tempted to cling to in this world, things that we don't want to give up. And at times, it seems like they are very real, and salvation and the resurrection are very far off. Every one of us has a little bit of a different story, but in a real sense, Lord, we are all in the same boat. We know, Lord, when we step back and look, that our lives are brief. We know that our nations and cultures are like a drop from a bucket. And yet, Lord, you are forever and ever, and your love for us is eternal. We thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ went into the ocean for us, that he took, he underwent the sea of your wrath, the storm of your judgment, so that we could be saved by faith in him. And we pray that in response to that great grace, we would hold on to nothing so tight that we cannot throw it overboard if we need to. And by the same token, Lord, we weep when we think of those that we know and love perishing apart from Christ. And so we pray, even as we willingly let go, that you would save those that we love. And we pray that you would bring about your good will and good purposes in our lives and in theirs. So that when we stand before you on the last great day, having all crossed that dark river, having made that necessary long journey, we will stand before you with joy. And we will see that it was all worth it. And that you are good. Hear us, we pray. Help us count that cost. Do what you're calling us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.